You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. We start this thing. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, that's how we do it. The good morning was not nearly as loud as most because if you'll notice, we have some empty chairs. And doesn't it feel good to be able to stretch out a little bit? Yeah. Um, so this is, uh, if, you, if you haven't been here before, one of the most interesting things in this church is we, we call it the reverse church because most churches during Christmas season, right, attendance swells up and up and up and up and up. In our church, in Christmas season, it goes down and down and down and down and down. And so actually it's just really interesting because I have grown to love that because now we get a chance to like have some real talk, people. It's family time, right? And uh, But also because uh, this Christmas season, the Christmas season is busy enough and it's really nice for everybody to be able to go back to family and go back to friends and, and even in this church to be able to calm down. And that's really, really a good thing. So rest well this season, please. Um, that's a, it's something we don't do real often in our culture. Um, this morning, we're going to be marching through, uh, we're actually doing a series, which we, uh, I mean, we do series, we call them series, that's a fancy way of saying what we're preaching through. Um, this particular seven weeks, we've been focusing on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We're talking about uh, why he had to, why, why he said he came to this earth. And so we've been uh, kind of all over the Bible, um, particularly all over the New Testament, particularly all over the Gospels, where Jesus has been talking about why he has come. This is a very, very important topic, and we're going to jump into that in just a second, but in order to introduce the topic, and we can talk a little bit today because this is a smaller knit family group, uh, we're going to talk today about complaining. Yay! I have a one... What? Do we have to? I like the cut of your jib there. Uh, okay, yeah, there's, uh, <laughs> so I have a, I have a schedule. Everybody here has a schedule, but my schedule is a little bit different than most. My, my, uh, my schedule, I, I work a lifestyle job as a pastor, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and all the holidays and all that stuff. We're just on call all the time. So I have to build this, uh, I build a routine, and part of my routine, my weekly routine, one of my favorite parts of my weekly routine is Monday mornings at approximately 10 to 11 a.m., depending on when I get there. Will's chuckling right now. So uh, every Monday morning, I go and meet uh, with a group of guys that are a bunch of old, cranky men. And we call it uh, we call it Old Man Coffee. I call it Old Man Coffee. I think it's kind of been adopted that. We call it Old Man Coffee. And uh, Old Man Coffee, we sit around, and what do we do, guys? We complain. Yeah, we complain about... we. We've, and we come up with solutions for everybody else. <laughs> Not our own solutions, but solutions for everybody else's problems, right? And, uh, and, and actually, we, we don't complain a ton, but we do, uh, we do complain a little bit here and there. Most of it's about how sore everybody's getting. And I'm, I'm by far the youngest member of Old Man Coffee, but uh, uh, did I say by far? I meant by far. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually a wonderful time to be able to hang out with some guys and we can relate and all kinds of stuff. But um, I don't know if you knew this, but complaining actually works its way quite a bit into the scriptures. If you, if you, do, a, if you do a word search on complaining or grumbling, you're going to be surprised. You're going to be shocked at all of the times that it comes up in your scriptures, complaining or grumbling. 
Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. But I just want to ask you, what are your favorite things to complain about? Anybody? Favorite thing to complain about? Driving. Driving. Other Wait, other people? Oh, you're, okay, because I complain about your driving. So I just wanted to... So driving, drivers. Okay, what else? Go ahead. Just shout it out. Weather. Weather? The cold? The cold. Who complains about cold? cold. Warm. No. Yeah, no. Cold is awesome. I was, yeah, I'm German and Polish, man. I'm built for this weather. Go ahead, Mary. Pajamas to go shopping. Where? <laughs> yeah, people shopping in their pajamas. That gets Mary. Okay, so I guess, uh, you guys want to, do we want to show up Christmas Eve in pajamas? Anybody? Um, never mind. Go ahead, Sean. Negativity. Negativity. You complain about negativity? <laughs> I think we, yeah, Laura's pointing at me. You too, Brian. That's what she's gonna because I do. I complain about negativity, which is hilarious. Go ahead, Callie. Traffic. Traffic patterns, especially now that you guys live in a place with traffic. Yep. How, how is it coming back to Rapid City? Are you like, man, the roads are so awesome. Oh, yeah, see, I, I would think you'd come here and be like, why is everybody driving so slow, right? Because we do, we all drive the speed limit, so go ahead, Hunter. Bosses. Let's stop there. Go ahead. Stub. Getting up in the morning, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not a morning person, and I'm starting to make those old man noises where you start to sound like a hydraulic machine, right? Right? Every single time, every movement right away in the morning, you sound like a hydraulic truck. It's awesome. Go ahead, Tyler. Uh, sometimes coworkers are dumb. <laughs> so you complain about them being dumb, or you're complaining that they are dumb? Yeah, yeah anyways, okay. I don't quite know where you're going with that, Brian. Go ahead, Seven. I complain about you can, right, negativity, right? I complain about the complaining, and then I become one of them, so I should have someone complaining about me. Okay, what else? Misspelling. Yeah, misspelling in uh, in public announcements. Um, well, I I apologize for every single bulletin. That's uh, yeah. Uh, if you uh, there, I, I heard of one church before that uh, said that if you find uh, the first person to circle a typo and bring it to the person who did it, they got free coffee. And uh, yeah, I I don't do that for a reason because I'd be broke. So yeah. Anybody else? Go ahead, Peter. But when they're playing well, you still complain. Yeah, because that's the definition of a true fan. Yes, that's exactly how that works. Yeah, uh, go ahead, Creedon. Browns fans. Browns fans. After last night. Okay. Um, we have a, we actually have a lifestyle uh, where where we do complain quite a bit. Um, most of us in America, we actually uh, we have a lot of resources and outlets for that, right? Like you can jump on Facebook any moment now, or Twitter any moment now, or whatever. You can jump online and you can find some serious complaining. You can find people encouraging others to complain, and you can find satire articles about complaining and people complaining about the satire articles about complaining and all that stuff. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. 
Um, today we're gonna uh, we're gonna take a look at um, actually a really interesting kind of tie-in to a couple of different things. Uh, we're gonna start in the book of Numbers, chapter twenty-one, and we're gonna see something. Um, oh, maybe we should start here. Let's ask this. Okay, uh, have you ever, who here reads comics? Anybody read comics or listen to cartoons or anything like that? What are some onomatopoeias? You know what an onomatopoeia is? That's a word. That's a sound. What are some onomatopoeias for grumbling in the comics? For complaining is arg, A-R-G-H. Right? What else? Rabble, rabble, rabble. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you're Yosemite Sam, what is Yosemite Sam's complaining? He's the right? Yeah, okay. What else? Uh, there's one, Jonas, in your, uh, in your play. Who, what does Scrooge say over and over and over again? Bah, humbug. Bah, humbug. Now, I don't know if you're catching a little commonality between all of those. Think about it. Let's, let's all say the word arg together with meaning. Ready? One, two, three. Arg. Where does that come from? What part of your, what, what part of your, what part of your body does it come from? It comes from the chest area right here, right? Arg. Can you feel it in the back of your throat? How about, uh, Yosemite Sam's? Rasafrasa. Just do that. Ready? One, two, three. Same area, right? 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 Now, what about, um, what was the other one? The Bah Humbug. Let's do this as Scrooge would, have do, would do it. Ready? One, two, three. Bah Humbug. Can you feel it? You feel where that comes from? Fascinating. Here's, here's some interesting tidbits, okay? We're going to look in just a second in Numbers 21. Um, in Hebrew literature, in, in, in ancient Hebrew literature, particularly in the Bible, uh, there are two words for your spirit or the spirit of God. And one is the word ruach, which is breath. And if you say ruach, right, it comes from kind of the same place. But another is the word nefesh. And uh, nefesh is this region right here uh, in, in Hebrew literature. Okay, so nefesh. This is where the Hebrews would say your soul dwelt. It's where your life force is. How would they think that? Right? Because what happens? How is it easiest to kill a person? Chop off their head, slit their throat, strangle them, choke off their airway passage, you name it, right? Like, there's an important part of your body here, okay? And this is where, in Hebrew literature, when you hear the word nefesh, that's, this is where the Hebrew would be going, oh, you mean your soul, which comes from this area. I just want to seed your mind with that in just a second here. We're going to jump into Numbers chapter 21. Now, we're marching through this series about incarnation. We're talking about, um, this is actually a really good segue into this, right? Like, our bodies are important things. Jesus took on a body. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about the incarnation, which means to take on the substance of, to to embody or to wrap in flesh. That's the word incarnate, which is from uh, Latin, E-N, and then carne, to put in flesh, to put in meat. Uh, we would use it in our common language in uh, chili con carne or something like that. That's chili with flesh in it, literally chili with meat in it, right? So this is the idea of Jesus, this doctrine of incarnation is the God of the universe taking on flesh, as Philippians says, which is that Jesus emptied himself um, by taking on the nature of a servant. That he didn't become less, but he actually added on more, right? So he became a, became a, a human by taking on flesh. And so this is what we're talking about. And Jesus says um, actually many, many more than just what we're picking. We decided to pick seven of these, but Jesus says about 18 to 19 different purpose statements, maybe a few more if you start looking in some of the wording, different purpose statements he says about why he came, and this is what we're looking at. Today we're going to look at one of the most famous, least known passages in all of Scripture, 
And uh, what I mean by most famous, least known, actually Luke did a fantastic job. We're going to get to one of the most famous passages in Scripture that Luke so amazingly recited in John chapter 3. But before we get to that, we have to get to the least known most important and most well-known tie-ins to this particular passage. So uh, Numbers chapter 21 is where we're going to be. Numbers chapter 21, that's in the Old Testament. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. And uh, I'm going to kind of set the stage and kind of tell you what's happening in the people of Israel's um, their history up until this second, or up until this particular story. But uh, Numbers chapter 21 is where we're going to be. So, uh, here's the scene. Here's what's happening. Israel, the people of God, they've just uh, entered, or they've just had their entire life completely upended. This is where we enter in the story. Uh, Up until this moment, for about 400 years, the Israelites were in the land of Egypt, um, kept as, uh, they, they weren't slaves for all of those 400 years. Actually, they enjoyed quite a decent life, living next to the largest city that they in the in the burbs of the largest city that they had uh, that, that that was known to man at that time, right next to uh, right in Egypt, right. So they're living in a land called Goshen. There, uh, they have wonderful rolling hills. They live next to a river, and in those days, rivers water equals life, right. So they're next to this beautiful, huge city, but they're kind of out in the rolling countryside. Um, I don't quite know how to actually uh, how to how to say this, but it would be like. Um, Oh yeah, just like living, the best would be like living in the suburbs, except they're farmers, right? So they're farmers and sheep herders. Uh, they live in the shadows of the most prominently and technologically advanced city in the world at that day. They enjoyed the privilege of having food and resources. Like I said, they had a large river. They had everything that they could possibly need. And then all of a sudden, their relatively prosperous lives, their lives where they're actually enjoying life and, and everything's fine, turns into in some, all of a sudden some incredibly difficult years because one leader raises up and all of a sudden he says, hey Hebrews, I want to make you slaves because you're different than us. We see this today all of the time. If you remember uh, several years ago where we had the Hutus and the Tutsis um, in Rwanda that all of a sudden decided to start create, start committing genocide against one another based on no shape, right? Like this happens in our world to this day. People like, hey, you're different, you look different than us, we're going to enslave you because we're the more powerful ones. So that's what happened to the Israelites. And so there, all of a sudden, their whole world is like, man, this is really, really bad. And what happens in the book of Exodus is they cry out to God. They, they, they lift up their, it says they lift up their voices to God. And so what's happening is literally their souls, right? Their, their nefesh is forcing air out and they're going, God, where are you? Where are you? And it comes from a deep part of their soul. And who can blame them, right? It's the natural human response to things getting tough. You cry out to God, like, what is going on, God? What is going on? So they cry out to God, and God shows up in one of the most visibly spectacular scenes in all of Scripture we call the book of Exodus. He shows up, and he's like, man, I'm going to take you guys out of here. But not only am I going to take you out of here, I'm going to take you out of here in a way where it's going to be unmistakable to everybody around that this is me, and I'm doing this. That's what God does. And so what he does is he comes in, and you know the, if you know the story, or maybe you don't, but what he does, he comes in, and in ten gigantic shows of his power against the powers of the people of, uh, of Egypt, he eventually pulls his people out, and he says, hey, here's what I'm doing. I'm pulling you out of here, not just because I hate slavery, because I do hate that too, but I'm pulling you out of here because I want you to come and meet with me. 
I want you to come and be with me. I want you to come to this mountain where I'm going to meet you on top of the mountain. I'm going to speak to you and you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. That is what uh, what Numbers is all about. Excuse me, that's what Exodus is all about. And this is what happens is eventually they're let go, right? You know this. You, you may know the story, but in what we call the Passover, they are let go and they move out to go meet with God. And God meets with them on the mountain on a burning, fiery flame on the top. And as they meet with God, this is this powerful moment, what happens is God says, okay, here's the deal. I'm actually going to come and dwell with you. I'm going to come and dwell within your people. I'm going to be in this little thing we're going to call a tabernacle. I'm going to call that my house, even though it can't house me, right? Like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to dwell in the tent of meeting. I'm going to be there with you in a pillar of a pillar of fire and a cloud. Cloud during the day, pillar of fire at night. So God says, I'm going to live. I'm going to be your neighbor. I'm going to be your neighbor. So all of a sudden, God's neighbors with the people of Israel. And he's not only just a neighbor, but he's literally walking with them. Because what happens is his cloud will get up or his pillar will get up and then it will move out into the wilderness and the people pick up the camp and they go walking after God going, okay, God, we'll follow you everywhere we go. And then when he stops, they set up camp. And this is what's happening throughout the book of Numbers is he's picking up and he's going and they're going, there goes our neighbor, let's go follow him. If you do that today, you could get charged. But that's what's happening. And during their wandering, some things start to unfold. And here's what happens in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. I just want you to pause right there. Just look at that statement, right? Why have they're, they're complaining, they're they're grumbling, they're right? They're grumbling against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up, up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. So they're getting what? Food. What are they complaining about? The food. Right, So God's giving them food. He's giving them manna. He's giving them quail. He's giving them things that they're going to, they're, they're sustaining on, right? He's giving them meat. He's giving them this stuff that tastes like honey and coriander that they call manna. And they're going, there's no bread. There's no food. There's no water. There's no supermarket. And I hate all the food that I have. This is a big time complaint. So verse 6, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. End story, moving on. The Israelites moved on and camped to Obeth. So, right, like, there's this really weird, this is a really weird thing. Like, you should be reading the text going, wait, what, blah, 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 what just happened? That's like four verses, and all of a sudden they're complaining and snakes are biting them and they're dying. And, nope, moving on, right? The Bible just kind of moves on from that. It's this teeny tiny little story out in the middle of nowhere that makes you go, what is going on? Those of you in my Genesis class, what is that called when you... Uh, when you see something weird and just moves right on. What's that called? Yeah, it's a foreshadowing, right? Like, it's something where you're going, this is weird, i got to see how this is going to play out. It's got to be something, right? 
Well, the funny thing is, is this particular passage actually dies away in the text and only enters one other time in Deuteronomy and then picks up one other time in John. And so we're going to jump over to John chapter 3. So now what just happened in that passage is like, you have to kind of get the sense of this. Like literally the people are living with God dwelling among them in the book of Numbers. God is literally dwelling among them and he's leading them and he's shepherding them and he's pastoring them and he's moving them forward. And that, that's what he is doing. That is, that is his role. And the, they, they literally start complaining against God. They start grumbling and they start making that noise, right? They're using their, their spirit. They're using their soul to complain against God saying, this is not right. This is not good. This is not, no God, this is, this is horrible. We do not like this. We do not like this. Now, you guys know we've already been talking about this. What the heck does this have to do with love and Christmas? Well, here we go. John chapter 3 says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born again? This is Nicodemus. How can a man be born again when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And then there's this phrase. How can this be? Nicodemus said. Or Nicodemus asked. Now, in that little passage, there's all kinds of weird commentary about it. All kinds of people wondering what's going on there. The vast majority of them think the same thing that I'm going to tell you right now, and that I I think I think, is that I think in this moment, Nicodemus is going, Ah, how can that be? It really depends on how you read that. Jesus replies, You are Israel's leader, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have, I have given, spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His own Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe already stands condemned because he has not believed. In the name of God's one and only Son, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Fascinating little passage. 
And Jesus picks up this idea and he says, hey, you remember that thing in numbers that nobody knows what in the world's going on with that? Guess what? That's about me. It's a beautiful little moment where God almost sprinkles this into the, the Old Testament passage going, oh, we got a grumbling moment here. Let's send some snakes. Let's put a thing up on a serpent because Jesus is going to come and he's going to say exactly this. And he's going to do this. Now, this is one of our purpose statements. Why does Jesus say that he has come into the world? He's come into the world. Why was he sent? Why did God send him? Because uh, he loves the whole world. Because he loves the whole world. He loves the whole world. Jesus tells us that he came because of God's love and not to condemn the world, but to save it. He tells us that, that this, he tells this is the, like the, this is the most wonderful thing that he states about who God is, is that he loves this whole world, even though it's a world that hates light, loves darkness, grumbles and complains about the food and whines about driving and complains about complaining. That God still loves this world. As he sits back and he listens to all of us, like, like I've talked about a couple weeks ago, the idea of like, man, you cut me off, die peasant, get off of my roads. Like that's my thought process, right? Is if somebody cuts me off or somebody steps in my way or somebody interrupts my peace because of their complaining, what do I want to do? I want to condemn them. I want to condemn them. I want to condemn them because they messed me up. And God's going, I love this world. I love this world. And I love this world so much, I'm going to send my one and only son to change things. To change things. So there's a few things that Jesus talks about here as he talks about the love of God changing things. First thing he talks about here is that the love of God comes to save the world. The love of God is the thing that will save the world. The love that God has for you and for your complaining about complaining is the thing that will come. That, that, that love is the thing that saves this world. It is a love that isn't earned or deserved. It is a love that isn't something that comes when we're perfect and don't complain about complaining and don't complain. It's not that. It is a love that comes as a result of just the fact that God loves this world. And He sends His Son to show that love. See, the love that God has shown us changes everything. It starts by changing us, by breaking us from the things that destroy us, that want to destroy us right now. The love of God saves us from wrath right now. In the Old Testament, those wrath, that wrath looked like snakes, fiery snakes that bit people and killed them. That's what the wrath looked like. In our day, they're still snakes. They just look a little bit different, don't they? They look like people, or they look like myself, or they look like stuff, or they look like my bills, or they look like my job or my boss. There are still snakes out there biting us and trying to kill us, right? But God's love saves us from that wrath. And what do we do when we see the snakes all around us and we see the things that are coming to bite us and to take us down? What do we do? We're supposed to look to the cross, Look to Jesus, the one who he says, just as the son of, just as this bronze serpent was lifted up, so I will be lifted up. And if you look to me, you will be saved from the wrath that is now and the wrath that is to come. 
That is what the Christian walk is all about. When we're, it's not about having a, um, this is one of those dangerous sermons because we're talking about complaining. And please trust me, uh, don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is Christians don't complain about because they're, um, because they're full of happiness and unicorns and rainbows and nothing's going wrong. Because there's a real danger in thinking that, isn't there? Like, oh, if I'm close enough to God, if I love God enough, then nothing's going to go wrong. And if something's going wrong, well, it's probably because I'm doing something wrong. Well, this world's just full of stuff that's going wrong. And the only way to get through that is to look to Jesus. See, the temptation and the lie is when stuff goes wrong, what am I going to look at? Myself and go, what am I doing wrong to deserve this? What am I doing wrong to deserve this? No, we're supposed to look to Jesus and go... You got this. You've got to have this. You've got to take this. Because Jesus is the one that saves us from wrath right now and wrath in the future. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just talk about this wrath that we're being saved from when he talks about God sent his son in the world to save the entire world. But he talks about also that God saves us from darkness right now. There's this universal statement in this John chapter 3 stating that mankind loves the darkness. This is the verdict. Like this is the author of truth, the judge of all things going, here's the verdict. Here's what I know. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Everybody loves darkness. Everybody loves darkness. And they run away from the light and they hide from light. And Jesus comes to save us from darkness and turn us from people who love the cover of darkness to people who love light. Now again, these guys are kind of immersed in like ancient, uh, in like, uh, they're immersed in the Hebrew Bible, like they know their Bible, right? And Jesus is talking about something here, right? He's talking about the fact that light is like, uh, there's a light that's continually there in the Holy of Holies, in the temple of God. It's supposed to shine out to all people in order to symbolize, right? Like there is no dousing of the light in God's presence. Because in that day and age, things that were in darkness, darkness was a time for chaos and a time for disorder and a time for being out of the world. When the light was there is a time of productivity, a time of work and a time of order. And Jesus is going, no, the whole world loves that disorder stuff. The whole world loves that chaos stuff. The whole world loves it when things fall apart. The whole world loves it when things... And I have come to change them into people who love light. See, Jesus is light and He shines light into dark places. This is a huge kind of, not, not just a metaphor, this is a huge, um, a huge, a huge image that Jesus is using to talk about humanity. We love chaos. We love disorder. We love it. But perhaps the best way to understand this is, and I've heard it, I don't remember who said it, some famous pastor did, and I'll give him credit nebulously. So, uh, perhaps the best way to understand this is, um, the one, I've heard it said this way, the one who is lost, loves the light because it means they've been found. The one who is hiding hates the light because it means they've been found. And this is the this is the difference that Jesus makes, right? Like we hate light because we're trying to cover up everything that's inside of us, but Jesus is going, no, 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 you gotta love the light so we can come out here and we can do some work and we can be productive together and we can get all that sin out and we don't have to worry about all that stuff and we can move forward together. That's what Jesus does inside of us. He saves us from the darkness that's inside and even outside as now we're battling, uh, like Nick said earlier, not a battle that's between flesh and blood, but a, a spiritual battle between light and dark. 
And then Jesus doesn't just stop there because he also talks about, like we can't gloss over this, what did Jesus come to give? Eternal life to all who believe him. Eternal life to all who believe him. Jesus saves us from death. Now, in our culture, unfortunately, what we've come to believe is we've come to believe that that means that when we die, then we will experience eternal life. We got this life, and this is temporary life, and whatever, you know, eventually I'm going to die, and then I'm going to pass on to my real eternal life. But that's not the way Jesus is talking. He's talking about those who believe in the name of Jesus, those who look to the cross, to the name of Jesus, those who come to the light and walk away from the darkness. They will have eternal life right now. Your life changed and made complete diff- it's made completely different. Where all of a sudden we're able to see like it's not you only live once, it's you only live for all of eternity. Like right now, and I, we've done this before, but I want you to look around at the weird people next to you. And if there's somebody really weird that you know kind of well, go ahead and give them a little nudge with your elbow. That's fine. I want you to do that. Just nudge them. Um, that person you're nudging, you're going to spend eternity with them. Yeah, remember that. I think she does, Carrie. That's the problem. Right? Yeah. Seriously, you will spend eternity, all of the, I mean, I just want to open up your eyes. All the rest of this stuff, this pulpit and these chairs and this stupid cement pillars, and this stuff is going to be gone in a flash. Your car, gone. Your job, Gone. I can't snap with my left hand. <laughs> Your broken down shoulders, right? Gone. This stuff will be gone. Everything will be gone. And what will remain? That person next to you. And the Word of God. That should help us reorder our life. The person next to you and the Word of God will live eternally. C.S. Lewis says that uh, you've never met a mere mortal. You've never met a mere mortal. Whether you're on the bus or whether you're on the train, you've never been next to a mere mortal. You've, ever, you've only been next to someone eternally beautiful or eternally and completely and utterly dead. Jesus came to give us eternal life. And that means that this life changes, right? If you have eternal life, all of a sudden you look at this and you go, whoa, wait a minute. If I'm living in eternity, what is this pile of sticks that I just mortgaged for whatever hundreds of thousands of dollars? What is that worth? Is that going to even last a hundred years? That's barely going to last 50 to 70 to 80 the way they make stuff now, right? It's going to fall over. And I'm going to live on for eternity. And I spend all my time and energy and money worrying about the pile of sticks. Right? Like, that's the idea. Once we have eternal life, we have a perspective shift and everything changes. Everything changes. And Jesus comes to do that. This is why Jesus came. is He came to show us that following Him, that, that living like Him, and I guess I didn't even say this earlier, oh man, I forgot, like our, our, our mantra through this whole thing, even though that's a Middle Eastern like, spiritual word, but our, our tagline to this whole series is, Jesus' reasons for coming are our pattern for living. 
So in John chapter 20, verse 21, he says, As the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Like, that's what Jesus came to do. He came to send us in the same way that he was sent. So why he comes makes a difference. Like, that's why we exist and why we live. And if he came to bring eternal life, to lay down his life as a ransom for many, to point people to God by looking at him on the cross, what is our job? It's to do the exact same thing. Point to Jesus, lay down our life, sacrifice for everything, and have this perspective of eternity in our head. What's the first step towards complaining? In my mind, what's the first step towards complaining? I'll tell you. It's the second I lose sight of eternity. It's the second I wake up and I go, another day. You do that? I do. Mostly on Sundays. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. kidding. I don't. I I actually don't. Only on Mondays. At Old Man Coffee. Another day. When my spirit pours out, my nefesh pours out through my body and goes, the first step to that is losing sight of eternity and going, I'm stuck here now. No, I am here now. I get this day, and this is the first day of the rest of my eternal life. So you can say that to each other tomorrow. Hey, good morning. Welcome to the first day of the rest of your eternal life. It was an old shop teacher of mine who would say that. Welcome to the first day of the rest of your life. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Welcome to the first day of the rest of your eternal life. If you said that to yourself every morning, how would things change? Today is Sunday, December, whatever, 16th, thank you, 2018. Who will you be December 16th, 2018? We can't even fathom that. We can't even think of that. Yet that is what you will live, and that is what Jesus has come to give you. And so that first moment where we go, oh, I hate that there's no bread, and there's no water, and I hate this miserable food. Oh, there's so many people cutting me off, and I can't drive anywhere. Oh, there's so many people complaining. It's the worst thing ever. Like, as soon as we do that, right, that is what is happening as we're going, get out of my way. Stop messing my life up. To an eternal creature, an eternal being. We have this fascinating little passage, and I'll just share this with you in Philippians, and this will wrap us up. Philippians chapter 2 says, If any of you have encouragement, excuse me, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, like if there's anything good about being with Jesus, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit at all, like if you're if you're with Jesus or you're in His love or you're in His Spirit, there's any tenderness and compassion, then, Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness incarnate, right? And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Yes, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then we usually stop there because somebody put a subheading in there. But check this out. Therefore, my brothers, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, Paul's presence, but also now more, my, more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. (laughs) It's an incredible passage, isn't it? And stupid convicting. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you might shine like stars in a dark crooked and lost generation. Can you see all the tie-ins there? Love light. Be light. Speak light. In a dark world. Don't remove yourself from the dark world, but be light in it. See, Jesus talks about all this stuff and He says that the Spirit of God does this. And He says that He likens the Spirit of God in John chapter 3 to the wind. He's like, the wind's going to do whatever it wants. It's going to go and it's going to change and it's going to move and it's going to do stuff. And so the Holy Spirit of God does in you. And so we are left only simply asking, Holy Spirit of God, could you come and do this stuff? There is no doing this on your own. Because what's the first thing going to happen when you all of a sudden are like, man, that's it. I'm going to make myself a decision. I'm going to not complain from this day forward. And then all of a sudden you're running Somebody's going to complain all day. And what's going to happen? You're going to go, man, why are you tempting me to complain? I can't believe you're doing that to me. And then the perspective shifts all of a sudden, right? The perspective shifts all of a sudden. Our job is not to simply work harder and be better, but as Philippians said, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and work according to His good pleasure. It is God's doing that. So we are left here going, God, can you do that in me? And my only question is this. Maybe you just need to take a look at your life and ask, do you have the Holy Spirit of God doing that inside of you? Are you loving light and hating darkness? Are you running to the light instead of hiding from it? Or are you often like me on any day of the week, more concerned with condemning the world? See, the light of the world came down into this place. He came down into this place, came out of the dark place. And He came to show us light, and He asks, will you come to the light? Will you come to Him? And I think the only way we do that is by coming to the Holy Spirit of God, saying, I cannot do this. I can't stop myself from complaining. Please, come and change me. So let's pray. And ask for that. Lord Jesus, I pray that You will give us newness of life. That's a a very heavily Christianese and thrown around word, newness of life. 
What I mean by that, Lord, is that you will give me a new spirit so that out of the my gut, out of my throat comes praise. Especially when I want to complain, Lord, help praise to come out of my mouth. Especially when I want to argue or grumble, or especially when I want to get real negative, help me to remember, Lord Jesus, help me to remember eternity is at stake right here and right now. That eternity is here and right now. And that you have saved us from the darkness and you have saved us from our sin and you've saved us from the wrath to come. You've saved us from all those things right now. Draw me up to your cross, Lord. Help me to see that as we've learned in Numbers. Help my eyes to be focused on you as you were lifted up so that I can know that it is not about me complaining because you didn't complain one ounce when you went to the cross. And it is not about me arguing because you didn't try to argue your way out of the cross. It is about me going and carrying that cross that you have given me to bear as I follow you. I, I need to know that. I can preach that, but teach me that inside. And for my friends here too, I pray that you'd do that. That you'd change us, that you'd make us light. That you'd help us to walk in your spirit. That this Christmas we would display the beauty and the glories of your cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.